Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrowcasting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Seventh of May, Friday. It was minus one when I got up this morning. The sky was lightning in the east, and the trees and hedgerows beside the night-edged cut sang. Buttery waves of golden light wash over the retreating frost. The sky is blue as Penny and I walk on starfields of ice. They glitter and sparkle but not as brightly as the notes of the blackbird's song that pour from that tree over there in the corner. It's a moonless breezy night with a wash of rain, and this is Narrowboat Erica taking to the air again, canal side. Welcome aboard. It's always lovely to see you. This week, the rain swept in, pushed by great fronts of ocean air. Moisture from places with magical names that I hear on the shipping forecast and can only imagine. Towering slab-like grey waves flecked with white. Sheets of rain hissed and tore at the bubbling waters, running off the ducks' backs in crystal rivulets. I watch the twins carelessly pushing their way across the cratered moonscape of water. And in their wake they leave a monochrome pattern of circles dancing. Next to us, on her nest on the gas locker, Betty remains sitting stoically. To be honest, I'm not quite sure whether she actually registers the rain. And the swans too, topping and tailing on their nest, bright-eyed in a world turned to water. And it drummed on the cabin roof, great wind-driven drops, plunging earthwards. And at other times it washed across the cut, through the trees whisper-soft and wetting. And we sat in the cabin, watching the different moods of the rain. Raindrops, tapping on the window panes, and streaking and tadpoling down the glass, rattling on the roof, causing the waters to bubble and spit like the cauldron from the Mabinogion. But from this cauldron, there would be no deathless life, only carp, and tiddlers, and the earthy trout-like scent that tickles the nose and makes the senses quicken. The sky had turned to water, reaching down to caress the earth with its liquid fingers. Or were the still waters of the canal reaching up to the sky? It was difficult to tell. The ground drank, 
and the water welcomed its airborne cousins, and the hedges bustled with percussion of leaves and birdsong. This is how life is sustained and fed, and it's free, and just comes out of the sky, and is magnificent. I lie in bed, listening to it, patter on the cabin roof, dripping from the gunnels with the erratic, metallic plinks into the dark night waters below. Every so often the wind rises, and the patter becomes a rustling like dry reeds brushing the sides by my head. I am safe and cocooned in the warmth and the strange rhythms of the elements. Thomas Merton, the Cistercian monk, describes it so perfectly in his book When the Trees Say Nothing. The rain that I am in is not like the rain of cities. It fills the wood with an immense and confused sound. It covers the flat roof of the cabin and its porch with insistent and controlled rhythms. And I listen, because it reminds me again and again that the whole world turns by rhythms I have not yet learned to recognize. Rhythms that are not those of the engineer. A little later he writes, Nobody started it. Nobody is going to stop it. It will talk as long as it wants this rain. As long as it talks, I am going to listen. It's been lovely to catch up with some of you during this week and to hear what you've been doing and thank you to everybody who has got in contact or just left a little message or even just a like. And thank you to Pamela and Matthew and of course the NB wannabes. And I just want to say to Nancy who's been with this podcast right from the first episode, well actually before I actually even started recording, and I know that she's not been feeling very well recently. She's been a bit poorly. So I'm um, hoping, Nancy, that you have a very, very speedy recovery and that you're feeling back to normal very soon. And I just want to send my very best wishes and thoughts to Clifford, who I know is experiencing his world falling apart. And just to say that you're with you and you're being really wise and I think just take your time. I know there's this feeling that time is short, but take your time. And as I said to you before, the irony about resilience is that it's bloody unresilient. So don't worry. 
it's perfectly natural to feel fragile and vulnerable and for things and the way and to feel the way that you feel so don't apologize for it and i was so pleased this week to make contact with vanessa who's on the narrow boat alice grace uh, from the mindful narrow boat vlogs and she wrote something really wonderful and touching and for me that came right at the opportune time so thank you for that very timely piece of encouragement and actually more than that i'm just really glad to have made contact and thank you for the nb wannabes who, who ably assisted in that contact vanessa's an old soul with playful eyes and i like where her heart is and i really enjoy have her mindful narrowboat vlogs and i i've put a link in the program notes as i'm sure that if you haven't come across them yet that you will enjoy them too and i particularly love the photography and capturing the beauties of the canal as she and her partner cruise through them on the uh, the mindful cruise that's always an important section of her vlog and one of the recent episodes Vanessa spent some time just to look closely at the ecosphere of the dead nettle and i love that few people would think to do that but i love those common and often overlooked plants and spaces to see what magic is there she also finishes each vlog with a little section devoted to her nature journal which you see or watch as she creates beautiful paintings watercolors and lovely notes and a, a poem that she composes each week which is actually pretty damn hard thing to do so i i am impressed by that vanessa it's a little reminiscent of edith holden's diary of the edwardian lady that was popular was it probably in the 80s or 90s and uh, and also uh, that journal that you're producing arlene of your cruise on the four counties ring i love these journals and uh, it it's there's something about them something beautiful about them and um it's well worth a look and the thing that i most appreciate about the mindful narrowboat vlog is its energy and its honesty it's mindful in the realities of the worlds in which you and i live and therefore instantly relatable and also doable we go on walks with vanessa holding a dog poo bag in one hand and the thing i really love is how the elements are so totally embraced and embedded in her videos if it's windy then vanessa has to shout above the wind roar and her hair flailing around her face and it's the irony of most digital media about the natural world in that it tends to try to filter out these elements to bracket out those very things that it tries to celebrate but here there's so much part and of the piece as the birds and the flowers and the animals that she so knowledgeably talks about 
and portrays in her artwork and poetry. Well, here on the moorings, the ducks are still sitting, and there are now three eggs in the swan's nest. The male is it's getting increasingly grumpy and protective, which is actually good. I get a bit worried when birds and animals become a little bit too tame, a little bit too familiar with humans. However, to them, the eggs appear to be purely incidental and ancillary to the mysteries of nest building. And although I missed it, we had a visit from a pair of geese with their little troop of goslings. I have seen a pair come in from time to time, but usually the swans nudge them away. And unfortunately, while they were here, one of the goslings got snatched by a crow. These can be difficult or uncomfortable, and and for some I know traumatic events to watch. Later, the incident is reflected upon and how cruel and upsetting this side of nature can appear to be. And we chat as the other side of the fence use, nurse their lambs, and any connections between them are left hanging in the air. There's also been a sighting of an otter. It came soon after I found a half-eaten fish on the canal side. And we're all delighted here, although it might explain the missing ducklings. And it's probably not such good news for the sunning carp either. I've not managed to spot it yet, but you can be rest assured that if I do, you will certainly hear about it. So far, this May has demonstrated the wisdom of the old adage, ne'er cast a clout till May is out. Nearly every night the temperatures have dropped to around freezing and we've woken to frequent hints of frost, crisp white splatches in the hollows or shaded places. As adages go, it's spectacularly problematic. Now, there's nothing wrong in its memorability and probably after Red Sky at Night, it's arguably the most often quoted. But what does it really mean? There's little doubt that it's in some way a reference to the possibility of frost or cold weather occurring in May and the consequences that this might have to social life and also to the natural world, and particularly gardening and farming. But does May in it refer to the month, i.e. the end of the month before you cast your clout, or to the blossom of May or hawthorn? In other words, until the hawthorn tree or bush blossoms. Ruth Binney, in her book on weather law, reports that although probably much older, the saying is first cited by a physician and scholar called Dr. Thomas Fuller in his book The Nomologia, published in 1732, where he states, Leave not off a clout till may be out, which is interesting but doesn't really help us to work out what it's actually all about. Miles Hadfield cites it as cast ne'er a clout till May is out, and Charles Dack in his 1911 
weather and folklore of Peterborough and district records it as, Till May goes out, change not a clout. But what is a clout? Wisely, Binney scours sources outside of Britain for comparable sayings for clarification. And there she notes that there's a similar adage in Spain that goes in English, do not leave off your coat until the 40th of May. In other words, June the 10th. And interestingly, in more recent times, I have heard the definition to become increasingly specific. So I recently heard it to mean your best clothes, i.e. your your Sunday best. And I've also heard it to refer to the thick winter underwear and was even given a very detailed account about how peasants used to sew themselves into them at the start of winter and then wait until May until they cast them aside. However, clout is much more likely to denote cloth in a, a generic sense. Dax's weather law of Peterborough uses clout in a different context, which might provide some light on this. And he describes how when Castor Common lands were open to wall and the gates taken off on May the 13th, there was a struggle with the cottagers as to whose cow would get through the gateway first. And the cow which secured the place of honour had a garland of flowers put round its horns when driven home at night. And the cow which was last to get on the common returned with a dish clout tied to its tail. And we sort of find a bit of support for this in Binney's reference to a French variant, which, in April, do not shed a single thread. In May, do as you please. Gosh, those reckless French. Dak also records a variation. Don't change your clothes until the cuckoo picks up dirt, which clears up the whole clout cloth thing, but leaves me completely at a loss for what the rest of it means. This ambiguity between May as a flower or blossom and May as the month may not have been quite so pronounced in past times, as Binney also notes that until the reordering of our calendars in 1752, the 1st of May lay 11 days later, and so therefore aligned much more closely with the flowering of the May shrub. And as in all things, we are probably wise to heed the words of our avuncular Miles Hadfield as he puffs on his pipe while stabbing with two fingers at his typewriter in a book-lined study. And he says this, The saying, cast ne'er a clout till May is out, is by some said to relate to the month, by others to the tree. Metrologically, we are safe in applying it to the month. And true to form, Hadfield then goes on to warn us of the next third cold spell of Buchan, which lies between the 9th and the 14th of May. On a positive note, that can reassure us with the proverb, cold May, good for corn and hay. And even rain in May makes plenty of hay. 
However, he also then goes on to note the adage, a May flood never does good, but then goes on to plausibly reason that this more than likely refers to the flooding of the Neen or the the Nen, depending on where you are on the valley, and uh, the land around it, which would cover the young crops with a layer of silt, and therefore spoil the harvest. And so whether we're actually any wiser at the end of this investigation about clouts and May, we can be reassured that cold, wet Mays have always been around, and we've always survived them. And I just want to finish with reading a wonderful piece of writing by Tom Hennan that I think sums up this time of year. It's called Sheep in the Rain. All day, dark rain has fallen on the white backs of the sheep where they stand under the oak trees. Water drenches the branches and leaves. It penetrates the grass and the ground. It makes the rocks shine. The wet hours drip from the edge of the barn, each one darker than the last, as night comes. The sheep have the same glow as lit-up windows, or small piles of new snow. If they were not there, the darkness would be complete. This is NB 506812, signing off for the night and wishing you a very peaceful, warm, dry and restful night. Good night. Temperature. Outside, 12.6 degrees. Inside, 24 degrees. Humidity. 90%. Dew point. 12 degrees. Wind direction. South-southwest. Wind strength. 8 miles per hour. Barometric pressure. 998 falling. Cloud cover. 91%. Cloud ceiling. 40,000 feet. Precipitation, 11.5 millimeters. Moon phase, 7.3%. Waning crescent. Day length, 15 hours, 20 minutes. Sunset, 2043. Skycasting 521